folks, this is Matt Chrisman here, bringing you another edition of The Inebriated Past, a Independence Day edition, and fittingly, we're going to talk about the American party system, and specifically how the American party system has evolved, and its relationship to everyone's favorite document, the United States Constitution. And the main argument I'm going to be making today is that there is a fundamental conflict between the constitutional system of government that we have been bequeathed by our genius founding fathers and the party system that has arisen to work within it. And the thing that made me think about this and the thing that made me think it was worth talking about really was that hilarious quote that Joe Biden had a few weeks ago about... James Eastland, the monstrous, racist, segregationist Mississippi senator who he was in the Senate with in the 70s. The quote is, if you've forgotten it, I know the new, new left tells me that this is old-fashioned, but guess what? If we can't reach a consensus in our system, what happens? It encourages the demands and demands the abuse of power by the president. That's what it does. You have to be able to reach consensus under our system our constitutional system of separation of powers. I was in a caucus with James O. Eastland. He never called me son. He always called me boy. The point I'm making is you don't have to agree. You don't have to like the people in terms of their views, but you just simply make the case, and you beat them. So everyone got mad at him, obviously, because he was praising a monstrous, horrifying racist who spent his entire career in government trying to prevent black Americans from reaching any kind of statutory or social equality. And obviously that is true. But I want to point to a different thing about this quote that I think is even more in its way revealing, not just about how Biden is a fossil who does not realize what's happening and doesn't understand the political world that he's in anymore, but how the conventional wisdom of, I would say, the vast majority of people in Congress, in the government, at all levels, and certainly in the uh, journalism sphere and in the punditocracy, understand politics. The thing that is important about that quote is the thing about Eastland is that he was a Democrat. Biden is talking about the need to reach across the aisle and to get uh, to, to do the kind of brass tacks compromise that gets things done. But he was talking, when talking about Eastland, about a fellow member of the Democratic Party, which he was also a member of at the time and still is. And that shows that he does not understand how things have changed, specifically in the last 10 years since the Obama administration, really, since, uh, since about 2008, 2009. Uh, it fails to recognize that the era of compromise that he is hearkening back to and that so many establishment political figures are hearkening back to, was made possible by the existence of having two ideologically incoherent political parties. Back then, the parties were not really divided by a hard line of ideology. It was much more divided by interest coalitions and specifically uh, geographical coalitions. And that we live now, for the first time really in American history, in an era of totally ideologically polarized parties, where the parties are not divided by region. They are divided, but broadly speaking, by ideology, or if you would prefer, by 
distinct coalitions of interest groups that are in conflict. In a system like that, or in a, in a structure like that, where the parties exist in that, in that state, the constitutional system of government that we have, with the checks and balances, with the three branches, all the shit you learned in junior high, in that system, meaningful cross-party compromise is impossible. In fact, the constitutional structure of, of the federal government makes any legislative function impossible because it was designed only to work in a system that did not have factional government. That's not me saying that. That is what the founders said at the time. That's what the Federalist Papers said. They said, yeah, this is clearly going to be fucked if factions ever emerge, but it's okay because factions won't emerge. Well, it's now over 200 years later, and we can say with confidence, factions fucking emerged. And this fact, this reality, is something that everyone needs to reckon with to understand where we are and how we can possibly move forward. So I want to start by talking about that document that we all know and love, the beautiful, beautiful parchment that we worship, the one that we're all going to be giving our come tributes to tomorrow on the 4th. That's right, the United States Constitution. Now, the Constitution, as many of you probably know, I would hope, was not the first attempt by the founding fathers, once they defeated Britain, to create a system of government for the, uh, the erstwhile colonies. There were first the Articles of Confederation, which attempted to create a radically decentralized system of authority with an incredibly weak central government and most power vested in the states. Because one of the foundational realities of American politics is that, and the thing that we have had to deal with ever since, is that the unit of the United States, when it was originally emerging out of its war with its colonial benefactor, the United Kingdom, was that the states had very distinct interests and identities, which meant that the job of creating a nation out of it was really the job of knitting together what felt really more like separate nations than departments, the way that there are departments in France or in uh, the UK. And the first attempt to do that was the Articles. The uh, United States under the Articles was an unwieldy system that, for one thing, had debt from the war era unequally spread throughout the, the, col the former colonies, different currencies, different trade concepts, and most importantly, diff different states with different economic uh, structures and systems that were not knitted into a whole and therefore couldn't function as a whole. And so the Constitution came out of the, of the effort to knit uh, these things into a more cohesive whole for these individual states to give up some of their authority in exchange for a, a more centralized control that allowed for, you could argue, uh, the emergence of finance capitalism, all that stuff with Hamilton, you know, the, the consolidation of war debt, and all the things that led to the emergence of, of America as a finance dominated nation. But because there was no gun at the head of anyone, basically, there was no coercion that was going to work because everyone really did have the authority. All these states didn't really have anything on one another because they did see themselves as separate. It had to be a negotiation. And so the Constitution emerged as the effort to 
prevent these states from ever feeling overawed or controlled by any of the other states. And that's the important thing, is that the, the, the people writing the Constitution, when they looked at the conflicts that had to be assuaged by the system of government they were creating, the chief ones they were thinking of were specifically re- state-based, region-based, but even more specifically state-based. And as such, that's why you have uh, things like the Senate and the House of Representatives, this elegant system where small states are able to gain some sort of foothold on power by virtue of the of the Senate, whereas larger states still have a, uh, influence because of the population-based House of Representatives. So that was all an effort to prevent any one state from feeling overawed by another. And then, of course, there's the checks and balances that they love to talk about, the three co-equal branches of government designed to prevent any one power from becoming overpowerful, a president from becoming overpowerful, a legislature from overpowerful, becoming overpowerful, a judiciary become from becoming overpowerful. And the idea was, the thought was that the dangers that needed to be checked against by these constitution by by this document were the dangers of some states ganging up on other states in some way, or of one branch of government overawing another branch of government. And we're taught that this is that the system was a beautiful and elegant solution for those problems. And, for I mean, at the time, it, it appeared to be so, and it has worked to a degree. I mean, the, the whole sectional issue ended up in a fucking bloody civil war that killed over half a million Americans. So even on its own terms, honestly, the United States Constitution wasn't great shakes. The real issue is that all of the elegant checks and balances that are in the Constitution fail completely if government becomes based on coherent and disciplined parties. The checks and balances we were talking about that prevent one branch of government from overawing the others and, and maintain a system where there's uh, accountability for all, those fail if one faction controls all the branches, which we have now. We've spent the last three years watching a gog as all of these norms and all of these checks and systems that are supposed to prevent a manifestly corrupt oaf from just doing whatever the fuck he wants without any kind of reckoning have failed to engage. And why? Because a ideologically coherent party that is allied with that president is also in control of the other branches of government, which means that it will never be in their interest to see him held to account, and therefore he won't be. So the checks and balances out the window. Why? Because there's an ideologically coherent party that controls all the branches. Uh, and the things that make the government work, the things that allow it to be responsive, the things that allow it to pass laws in the face of crises and in face of issues and, and respond to the popular will, those things fall apart if the different branches of government are controlled by different political parties that are ideologically coherent and have discipline, as was the case during the Obama administration after uh, 2010 when Mitch McConnell and the Republican House made it essentially impossible for Obama to govern, and he wasn't able to. Now, the people who wrote the Constitution and patted themselves on the back thinking they'd solved all these issues, they didn't imagine that these would ever come up, even though they were built into the framework itself, because they did not see the real divide being between interest groups that would have a stake in government. 
they only the only real divide they saw it was as I said between state interest, but the other real one, the real the one that they were counting on preventing the system from breaking down and from these from these sort of fractions to emerge was the one between rich and poor, the haves and have-nots. And they were very explicit about this, that the government they were creating was one that was designed to essentially lock the poor out of influence of government, to have minimal to no interest in government. People forget this, but universal manhood suffrage did not exist in most U.S. states until well, well into the 19th century, uh, and that the original idea for the Electoral College was that there would be no popular vote involved in it at all. State legislatures would meet and appoint electors, and then they would go together and elect a president. There would be no system in which they would be forced to vote for any specific candidate the way they are now, where a state, their popular vote winner in a state determines how their electors must vote. That wasn't the original conception, which is always funny when you see people trying to defend the electoral college on the grounds that the, the brilliant founders had this idea that we should honor because of their wisdom. We're not, we are already av- violating that by binding electors to the will of their state's population. At first, they were supposed to just get in a room and hash it out. There was no place for the commoner to vote there. And the, 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 the House of the Commons, the House of Representatives, the people who could vote in the elections for those offices and could vote in the, for the state offices that then elected the senators at that time was a very constricted franchise. It was constricted by property ownership in the vast majority of states. It varied from state to state. Some states had broader franchises. Some states had much more restricted ones. Rhode Island had a notoriously restrictive franchise. Pennsylvania had a relatively more uh, open one. None of them were anything that we would recognize as universal Forgetting, of obviously, the for fact that uh, women and, and uh, Native Americans and, and, and blacks were not allowed to vote, even among white males, the franchise was restricted because the people who created the Constitution wanted it that way. And so in their mind, there, the factions that would make the system they'd created impossible to work wouldn't emerge because everyone within government would be of the same essential class. They would all be ruling class broadly construed, and they would therefore be able to look out for the the common interest, which of course was sub, uh, synonymous with their class interests. And so that was the conception of the Constitution, that it was, that it was designed to keep the, the great beast, as uh, Hamilton called the, the regular uh, Americans, away from the lovers of power, and to allow the the ruling classes of the respective states to gentlemanly work out their their conflicts uh, in a way that prevented any one of them from becoming too powerful. But what they didn't realize, and they should have, honestly, is that even within a ruling class, there are conflicting interests. And the funny thing is, is it's not like they even had to be terribly smart to think that. They could have just looked across the pond at the country that they were emerging from. Already, by the time the American Revolution had happened, the uh, Parliament of Great Britain had within it political factions, the Whigs and the Tories, and they were divided broadly by uh, what sort of ruling class they represented. The Tories were the party of the rural big landowners, the sort of feudal remnants 
and the Whigs were the party of the emergent capitalist urban merchant class. And they were fucking daggers drawn. They were fighting all the time. And you would think that the American founders would have looked across, seen that, and thought, oh, what if that happens here? And instead, you look at the Federalist Papers, and they really just said, no, we're fine. And one of the big reasons for that, the reasons that they thought America would be an exception, is the same thing that is the answer to any question of what is exceptional about America. What is exceptional about America? It is not that we were magically sprinkled with the fairy dust of Athens and Jerusalem like Ben Shapiro says, or that the spirit of John Locke impregnated the minds of men and turned them into these these perfect subjects of, of liberal uh, propriety. No. The reason America is exceptional, and they and the founders knew this, that they were uh, grounded enough not to, to buy their own bullshit too much, is what Tim Heidecker would call free real estate. It's free real estate. The thing that makes America exceptional to all European powers, the thing that makes it its own thing, the thing that makes the thing that throughout its history has made it, America feel like a country apart, is the fat, the mere brute fact that there were always, for the vast majority of its history, endless amounts of land that could be taken from its native proprietors and then given over at basically no cost to white settlers. That reality is what shapes America's political institutions and political ideology and political imagination. Uh, Greg Grandin's new book, The End of the Myth, is very good on this, and I recommend it highly. That any kind of conflict that might have ground the gears of government to a halt would, in the minds of the founders, would always be assuaged eventually by westward movement. Class conflict, both within classes and between classes, would always be uh, soothed by the fact that people could just pick up and move west. Like, there was another native tribe to be expropriated from, there was more land to be given away. And as such, none of these conflicts would ever reach the point where they created a crisis of legitimacy or a crisis of functionality in the American political system. Now, even with that, even with that in their minds, very shortly after the establishment of the constitutional system, factions emerged. The, the Federalists and the uh, Democrat-Republicans pop up almost simultaneously with the establishment of the American government. And it really does turn out, it turns out that what happens is that the different sectors of the ruling class could end up having uh, conflicting policy interests. Oops. Uh, but the reality of that was at first masked by a geographic happenstance, which is that that divide ended up largely being represented through states a way that they, in a way that was something that they had anticipated because due to, due to geography, due to uh, richness of soil and a whole bunch of factors, uh, the South became a slave-based agricultural society and the North quickly became a more urban, uh, trade-based, and, and then after the Industrial Revolution, industrial-based social capitalist, capitalist social, social order. And so even though sectional conflicts like those were anticipated by the founders, the Civil War still ended up revealing the whole thing to be incredibly brittle and incapable of managing even the factionalism that was built into it, that was assumed. That's, I mean, it really is kind of astounding to think about. They had planned for that. They had planned for states having conflicting interests, and with it less than 100 years 
of them establishing the system, there could only be a resolution of a conflict over slavery through an incredibly violent civil war. So once again, take a fucking bow, you powdered wig-wearing chumps. So after the Union won the Civil War, they sadly botched a real golden opportunity to really just fucking rip that shit up and start over again. To just, at the point of a gun, because they had a lot of them, and the South was prostrate, re-establish the basis of government. Sadly, they didn't. They settled for working within the parameters of the system. They added a few very good constitutional amendments, uh, the usefulness of which, though, was incredibly predicated on who was in power uh, at the time. But the most important thing about the Civil War is that it forged a post-war political order that defined the parties along sectional lines in a way that masked the fundamental dysfunctional system that the Constitution had created. Because after the Civil War, parties were broadly aligned along regional identity and not ideology. And that allowed for people to accumulate some very fucked up notions of how the system was supposed to work. Now, the system that emerged after the Civil War is the system that we have inherited today of two political parties, two major political parties that contest for power in basically every election, the Democrats and the Republicans. The Democrats, after the Civil War, were the party of the defeated South and also of the northern ethnic immigrant enclaves of like the East Coast, Boston, New York, etc. Uh, whereas the Republican Party was the party of the yeoman northern farmer and uh, the emerging middle class. And then at the very top, of course, the emerging industrialist powers were funding both of them. Uh, I, the, the, mo- this, the most clear way to, to show, to, to represent exact, uh, specifically how this was working is the fact that in the war, years after the war, almost every contested election was between a Republican from Ohio and a Democrat from New York State. Uh, It's actually uncanny when you look back. The Republicans were almost entirely former Union generals from Ohio, and the the Democratic candidate was almost always a senator or governor from New York. That was because even the political base, uh, the, the, the majority of the political base of the Democratic Party was in the South, but in the immediate aftermath of the war, it would not have been viable for a Pers- uh, for a po- politician from the the former Confederacy, from the treasonous Confederacy that had killed so many young men from the North, uh, to to contest for national power, they would have been e- easily defeated by what was known as waving the bloody shirt, which was a uh, propaganda move that Republican politicians would engage in. Where the, it, it was started, I believe, by Benjamin Butler on the house the, on the House floor where you would hold up an a-, a shirt stained with the blood of some young patriot who had fallen in the war and remind people of the essential treasonousness and perfidy of the Southerners. So there was no way, even though the vast majority of votes, that, and electoral votes specifically, that were going to be part of any Democratic winning coalition were in the South, the frontman, the uh, candidate running for president, had to be from the North, and because of New York City, because of the dominance of New York City, and because of the power of the Democratic machine in New York City, 
New York was where the Democratic Party was most most powerful outside of the South. And so you had this these generals from Ohio, the most pop, the other the second most populous state in the North besides New York, uh, the home to so many brave uh, generals who had fought valiantly in the war and fighting uh, fighting it out at the ballot box with these with these uh, Democrats from New York. And that conflict, that regional conflict, went on. The battle was joined. The issue of Reconstruction was incredibly important. And meanwhile, the rising industrial capitalism that was coming out of the Civil War was doing its best to co-opt the entire political system and bring about the extravagance of capital accumulation and exploitation that we like to call the Gilded Age, leading to massive failure, massive dislocation, massive fall in living standards for regular Americans, misery, uh, horror, even as these huge, huge, monstrous Carnegie and Rockefeller uh, fortunes were being made. And that is why when the progressive movement arose in response to this as a acknowledgement by the literate middle classes and the more enlightened capitalists of both parties that this was a fundamentally uh, unstable situation and that the failure to reform would inevitably lead to some sort of violent revolution. It was already one of the most violent labor movements the world had seen at that point in the United States. Labor violence in the U.S. made everything in Europe look uh, like nothing comparatively. Both in both parties, a, a consensus around progressive reform emerged, which is why you had the the situation where you had Teddy Roosevelt uh, inaugurating the progressive era from uh, the Republican Party, handing it off to uh, Taft, who busted more trusts than Roosevelt did, and then the election of 1912, a conflict between Taft. Roosevelt coming back to try to reclaim the presidency with his new progressive party, and Woodrow Wilson, who was also proposing progressive reforms as a Democrat. And so you, saw, you see that at this point, ideology is not really the defining feature of any of these parties. The votes are coming from regions. The ideology is bipartisan, because... Everyone outside of the most fanatical capitalists understood that the system needed to reform, and therefore it did, along with both parties collaborating and doing so. So that's another thing where you had a, a, a crisis emerge, and the system, quote-unquote, worked. It prevented revolution. It prevented the uh, benighted uh, working classes from, collabor- from coming together to overthrow it. Um, but it did so in a way that required neither party to be coherent ideologically. Now, it's not to say that there was not friction within these parties that were held together uh, through spit and bailing wire. Spit and bailing wire. There really was, and the most intense moment of intra-party conflict that happened during this early 20th century era was the 1924 Democratic Convention. Uh, Now, as I said, the Democratic Party was an alliance between Southern whites and Northern white ethnics. Uh, Southern whites, almost entirely Protestant. Northern ethnics, 
largely Catholic. Now, there are significant cultural differences between these two groups, and those cultural differences also ended up being reflected in policy differences. The main one being the issue of prohibition in the 20s. Southern Protestant Democrats were dry. They, they, they endorsed prohibition. They, saw they wanted to see the evils of John Barleycorn banished from the land. And Northern Catholic ethnics vehemently opposed it, were wet. Uh, drinking was part of their culture, be they Bavarian Catholics, Germans, or, or Irish, or Italians. Uh, they all drank, and they all wanted to keep drinking. And in 1924, that conflict came to a head when the two people at the top of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination were Thomas McAdoo, who had been uh, Woodrow Wilson's Treasury Secretary, and New York Governor Al Smith. McAdoo was a Californian and a Protestant. Al Smith, the first Catholic to seek a major party nomination, a good Irish boy. Uh, from the Bowery. They, in 1924, the Democratic National Convention met to pick a nominee in New York City at Madison Square Garden, and McAdoo supporters and Smith supporters from the jump were at daggers drawn over two main issues. One was prohibition. McAdoo staunchly supported it and wanted to maintain it. Smith ardently opposed. And the Ku Klux Klan, which during the 20s was at its zenith of influence, Largely concentrated in the Democratic in the uh, Democratic Party, although not entirely. Indiana was largely controlled during this period by a Republican machine that was also the Ku Klux Klan in that state. But one of the main tenets of the Klan was hostility to Catholicism. So the Northern Democrats were incredibly anti-Klan and accused McAdoo of being a secret Klansman. McAdoo denied being a Klansman but not convincingly enough for many Northern Democrats. And what ended up happening was a complete shit show. Uh, they, they had ballots, they failed. They had ballots, they failed. They voted, they voted, they voted. They marched, they hollered, they fought. Fistfights on the, on the floor of the convention were, were incredibly common. It ended up taking 108 ballots for the Democrats to finally land on a compromise candidate John W. Davis, who went on to be absolutely destroyed by Calvin Coolidge in the fall election. But that just shows that, well, the regional nature of the, Demo of the party system prevented uh, the constitutional system from breaking down and becoming non-functional. It had its own sublimated uh, conflicts that ended up being fought in other arenas because it couldn't be fought at the actual level of government because... As I said, they were made up by these broad coalitions who shared power together when they held power, and as such, couldn't fight over these issues at that point, at that level. So now I want to talk about two distinct crisis points in America, 20th century American history that were dealt with through two distinct types of party compromise and cooperation, the, both of which are pined after by people in Washington right now, and both of which are impossible in an era of ideologically polarized parties. The first was the New Deal. FDR came into power on the back of the fa complete failure of the Republican Party and Herbert Hoover to handle the crisis of the Great Depression. Democrats swarmed 
the House and the Senate had massive majorities in both 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 chambers and ran the country. But of course, this was not a ideologically coherent party, as we said. It was made up of this motley arrangement of northern uh, working workers and increasingly northern liberal professionals and southern whites. And that meant that the New Deal could not be dictated by one side. It needed to be negotiated intrapartily. So that's one type of compromise that is being pined after. Intraparty compromise, where within one party, this being the Democrats who held power in these in all of the chambers, because the party was ideologically diverse, it needed to negotiate within itself how to do the New Deal. Uh, that wasn't just in terms of race. I mean, it's often talked about about how uh, FDR and the liberals had to sort of sacrifice racial justice on the altar of economic reform. And to a degree, that's true, but it goes beyond that as well, because while um, Southern Democrats did welcome the sort of broad reforms that FDR was uh, in favor of, it must be remembered that the South was also dominated by local grandees and power brokers who had their own ideology and were hostile to organized labor in a way that party bosses in the North were not. And so that's another axis that had to be negotiated between the two parts of the coalition, the broad coalition of the Democratic Party. But the thing that needs to be remembered is that in a situation like this, where you hold the presidency and you hold the gavels in, in the chambers, this negotiation is not zero sum. Some There can be a give and take because... Either way, you're still in power. You hold these these offices. You hold these seats. And therefore, within that party, there can be a non-zero-sum negotiation that gives both sides something in exchange for compromise on other things. So that's one sort of uh, compromise that these people hearken to. And this is specifically what Biden was talking about when he was talking about Eastland. He was talking about this sort of intra-party compromise, which is totally superseded by the emergence of ideologically coherent parties. It, 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 it is largely irrelevant, much more so anyway than it was then. And one of the real ways you can show, see that Biden has completely failed to realize how the ground has shifted underneath his feet by hearkening back to a model for compromise that isn't even really relevant anymore. The second example I want to talk about is after that, after World War II, the civil rights movement and the crisis caused by the civil rights activism that led inevitably to an, a, a cry for reform that was so overwhelming, so powerful, had such a huge grip over such a large percentage of the population who were willing to break the law, who were willing to defy authority in order to see justice done, that something had to give, if only to stop the Russians from making a big deal about it. At least that was Johnson. That was JFK's thought. Now, in this situation, uh, the civil rights movement, the intra-party compromise I talked about earlier uh, is not as important because, well, Southern Democrats during the New Deal were willing to work with the North on a lot of these economic issues. They were absolutely not willing to compromise on civil rights. For them, this was a zero-sum game. The degree to which uh, blacks in the South gained rights was the degree to which they and their constituents lost them. That was how they thought of it. So they were not going to be reconciled. And in the past, that had been the number one stumbling block to any kind of reform. That's why for the first half of the 20th century, the filibuster was almost exclusively used by Southern Democrats to prevent 
the uh, bringing forth of civil rights legislation. And that was okay in a period when the pressure to for civil rights was relatively muted. But once the civil rights struggle became pandemic, became overawing, uh, became the domestic news story, the, the social crisis of the time, that couldn't happen anymore. And so now with the civil rights movement becoming the domestic crisis of the moment, the way that Southern intransigence was overwhelmed was through the second type of compromise that is longed for in Washington now, inter-party compromise. And so because the Southern Democrats were not going to move on it, what happened was is that Northern liberal Democrats and Lyndon Johnson made a common cause with Northern liberal Republicans, which there were, as I said, there were tons of liberal Republicans at that time because in large parts of the North, you just voted Republican. It was, you just weren't going to vote for a Democrat. It was a lingering effect of slavery. But that didn't mean that you were inherently reactionary. You very well might have liberal views on any number of topics. You were probably less sympathetic to uh, the labor movement than Northern Democrats were, although not as uh, probably more sympathetic to them than many Southern Democrats were. Uh, but on an issue like civil rights, you could very well be a liberal and be a Republican. And so the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the foundational pieces of legislation that cracked Southern segregation were passed by an inter-party coalition of uh, Northern liberal Democrats and uh, liberal Republicans, or at the very least moderate Republicans who, even if they were personally not that thrilled about the idea of government interference in uh, the commerce, were even less thrilled about looking like a, a bunch of uh, quasi-Nazis uh, to the world during the Cold War. Now, the civil rights movement and the civil rights legislation of the 60s helped create the new world that we've been living in and that Washington has failed to comprehend, a world in which the conflict that was always implicit between a party political system and the constitutional federal governmental system is coming into focus and becoming salient. And that was ideological sorting because the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon, as we all know, and other, other things having to do with the crisis of the 60s led a exodus of reactionary Southern whites away from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, led the Democratic Party to be associated broadly more with liberalism than with any kind of lingering regional aff affection, and the Republican Party being broadly associated with conservatism as opposed to any lingering thing having to do with the Civil War. And it took, it took decades for this to play out. It didn't happen right away. It has to be reminded of that. The first uh, real inkling of it happening was 1964 when... Uh, the Solid South, which was called that because it was solidly democratic for a hundred years after the Civil War, cracked, and a number of southern states voted for Barry Goldwater in 1964. It was furthered by uh, Nixon, and at the federal, at the presidential level, but it didn't really filter down through to the congressional level until 1994. The the the, Rep the Republican Revolution of '94, led by Rich, by uh, Newt Gingrich was, in reality, the last gasp of those Southern Democrats who had held on to their seats 
they were finally replaced almost en masse by a new crop of ideologically galvanized Republicans. So finally, we have ideologically coherent political parties. Now, obviously, we, you can go too far in saying they're ideologically coherent. There is significant difference, in my view, between somebody you know, like Bernie Sanders or even Elizabeth Warren and someone like uh, Joe Lipinski or uh, Joe Biden, for that matter. Uh, but they're, broadly speaking, on the left. Republicans are, broadly speaking, on the right. And this was the first time that that really held on a national level. And we're living in the, in the, in the aftermath of that reality. Now, like I said, it finally filtered through all the layers of government government in about the early 90s. But even afterwards, the, the implications of that, I don't think, were really understood by anybody in government. One significant uh, element of this is that is the one group that had previously acted as the closest thing to an ideological backbone in the Democratic Party was the labor union movement, which had allied with uh, FDR and held broadly uh, part uh, uh, and held itself as a the tentpole of the Democratic coalition, even with all of the, the reactionary Southerners all through the the fifties and sixties uh, into the seventies. The breaking of labor power after the crisis of the seventies meant that that liberalism lost a economic raison d'etre. It became more cultural, uh, and so you had sort of a cultural liberalism. Uh, with a vague commitment to egalitarianism versus a Republican Party that was wholly committed to social and economic reaction. Um, And the first person to really understand the implications of this was Mitch motherfucking McConnell. In his own way, he really is a genius, a dark, monstrous genius. Because while every other Republican saw the ass-kicking that they took in 2008... Uh, where they were routed at every level of government in a repudiation of the disastrous Bush administration, which had seen the uh, horrifying war in Iraq and an economic collapse, the destruction of a major American city. Most Republicans were ready to do what was generally the thing that uh, the party out of power did when a new party came in, reach across the aisle, try to get some of that goodwill rubbed on them so that they weren't blamed make some deals. But McConnell realized something. McConnell realized that in an, in an era of ideologically coherent parties, there is no benefit to compromising with the other side. There is no rational reason to give the party in power, by power I mean in the top office, being the party in power, the presidential party, giving that person, giving the president a win on anything. There is no benefit to doing that There's because people will associate any success with him and his party. And any seats, that he, if any seats his party wins are seats that your party loses. So to the degree to which he is, he is able to advance his popularity and his agenda and gain seats is the degree to which your party loses seats, loses the ability to influence policy, their agenda is, is defeated. So there's no point to ever helping the, the party in power get any sort of policy through. The fear for many years was, oh, if you look intransigent, uh, the people are going to punish you. But what, what McConnell realized is, is that people don't pay that close attention, at least not enough of them do. 
if the president flounders, if the president fails to enact his agenda, people will blame him for it, especially if the economy is struggling. And they will do the only thing they can, which is reward the party out of power, even if they were the ones who made him not able to carry out his agenda, because there's nowhere else for them to do. There's nothing else for them to do. They can stay home, but that doesn't affect the final vote. Or they can do what most people who aren't ideologically committed, that narrow segment in the middle that often decides a lot of these cases, a lot of these races, they can vote, they can punish the president, they can punish the party in power by voting for the opposition, and that's you. If you're Mitch McConnell in 2008, that's you. And it fucking worked. 2010, the Republicans, after being a bunch of intransigent shitheads who actively worked to make the recession worse, who actively worked to make the health care reform that was passed worse, were rewarded with huge, with a huge swing in uh, the House and recaptured the House. Now, the thing about it is, is that this was always the case. This flaw was built into the system. Because of the amount, the, the, the number of ego, the number of uh, veto points that are set up inside the legislative system, and the separation of powers between a president and Congress, a party that is unified and opposed to another party and holds power, holds positions of veto within these structures, can absolutely prevent anything from passing. Can grind everything to a halt, even in the face of significant crises that need legislative action immediately, they can just say no. And they can be confident that that intransigence will be rewarded in the long term by people punishing the party that can't get things done by voting for them. This, this, this flaw within the system, this fundamental uh, bug in the code of the Constitution, it was mis- disguised for almost 200 years, by the vagaries of geography and by um, happenstance of history, by, by the fact that regional distinctions ended up becoming more salient to the creation of political coalitions than ideological ones did. But that time is over. The 60s ended it. We now have largely coherent, ideologically consistent parties. There is a range within them there's a left and a right party, broadly construed. Obviously, this is within the very narrow bands of American electoral politics. But it's enough that parties in power understand, or at least the Republicans do, that reaching across the aisle, being bipartisan, making a deal, is not in your interest. It is, in fact, irrational to do that. The rational thing to do is to refuse any and all compromise wait for the whole thing to shudder to a halt, wait for the, the party in power to fail miserably, and then reap the victory in the form of protest votes for you. And then when you're in power, you can do what they've been doing ever since 2016, which is destroy all of the precious checks and balances between the, the branches that were lovingly crafted by the founders. Oh, the president's not going to be able to become a dictator. He's not going to be able to just do flagrant uh, illegalities. Why Congress will stop them? Why would Congress stop them? Oh, because Congress will see themselves first and foremost as representatives of that body, not as representatives of a party. Well, what if they see themselves first and foremost as members of a party and not members of Congress? Oh, shit, yeah, no, then it all goes, goes to hell. Then the president gets to do whatever he wants. And that's where we are. We are now at the end of the road here where ideologically coherent political parties can 
short-circuit the checks and balances that prevented overreach of power and corruption, and also uh, have made reform literally impossible, have made it so that no compromise can be reached. So what can we learn from this? The thing we need to remember while he- listening to people fret during this election campaign about about the need to be able to reach across the aisle, the need to be able to get things done in some abstract system, is impossible. It's gibberish. It, 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 is not, it doesn't relate to the actual functionality of the system we're talking about. This system can't work. This, the, the kind of reforms that are necessary to avoid environmental and social catastrophe, in not even the long term, in the fucking medium to near term, are impossible. They cannot be obtained within this system. It was designed specifically to prevent these things from happening. It was designed to be a playground for the upper class to negotiate uh, with, b- between themselves. The introduction of mass party democracy and ideologically coherent political parties has upended that and essentially switched a master flip, a, 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 a fail-safe within the constitutional system to prevent the great beast from holding any power. And so all this talk about getting things done, about reaching across the aisle, about how important it is to have well-developed wonk policies, it's all irrelevant to the incentive structure of parties in power, especially when you consider the decades-long Republican effort to entrench their disproportionate minority power through gerrymandering in the courts. What this means is that any electoral strategy to overcome the system will have to be premised on a completely new strategy. It cannot be premised on piecemeal reform and reaching across the aisle and making deals. Deals are not to be had. The system must be overwhelmed by an unprecedented level of voter citizen engagement, which will then be coordinated, ideally, with a rise in labor militancy that can pressure government from the outside and shut down, if needs be, key sectors of the economy. And that is why it's important to remember, and if Bernie wins, which we're, I am rooting for, obviously, I hope many of you are, if Bernie wins, it's got to be remembered. He will likely, in his time in office, not get much accomplished. He's not going to get Medicare for all, most likely. He's not going to get uh, the debt, student debt uh, jubilee that we're talking about. He's not going to get the things that he's, he's been envisioning. But every fucking wonk piece of shit who's pumping up one of these other gargoyles needs to shut the fuck up because none of the rest of them will accomplishing anything either. Not with a disproportionately Republican Senate that even if they're not in the majority have levers of power within that body to prevent reform being there. They're not going to do it. The system has reached a point of critical failure. No Democratic president in office, in the current parameters, will achieve jack shit. But of those failures, which are all inevitable, as I said, only Bernie's failure has the potential to allow for the revitalization of a labor movement and a widespread disenchantment with the Democratic Party that could potentially lead to the sort of unprecedented, really, mobilization that will be necessary to successfully confront capital and successfully confront these sclerotic political structures that must be abolished. 
Change that is meaningful, change that can save us from the worst outcomes, is impossible in the current system. The current system must be abolished. So the only question for anybody who is still invested in any way in electoral politics is, what is the way forward that could bring about that final confrontation between an engaged and mobilized citizenry, ideally mobilizing around workplaces with vital functions to the economy, and this sclerotic talking house for plutocrats and their disgusting minions. All right, guys, that's been another inebriated cast. No, that's been another inebriated past with Matt Chrisman. Hope you have a good 4th of July. Uh, Please don't blow off any of your appendages. Bye.